The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. When we read this, we're going to read all of chapter 4. We're going to be looking through chapter 4 to 7 today. We're taking a big chunk of, of what God has done a long time ago. But we are going to read uh, 22, chap 22 verses, uh, not 22 chapters. So sit tight, buckle up. Uh, if you didn't make lunch plans, we're ordering in pizza. Uh, <laughs> but let's go to God's Word. Uh, it is good. He speaks to us today through his word, um, starting in verse 1, chapter 4. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines and three, and, and they are also had been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, also Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the Ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she had heard the news of the Ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. About the time of her death, the woman attended her, said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. This is God's word. Like I said, there is a lot of history in the Bible, but it is not merely just a book of history. 
It is a book of God's redemption story, how he has worked in the lives of his people, revealed himself to his people, and how he continues to speak to us today. And through this story, through the history of God's people, we see amazing things for us. Um, Our sermon title today is The Problem of God's Presence. What a strange thing. The problem The problem of God's presence isn't the presence of God, something wonderful. Shouldn't we delight in the presence of God and desire to be in the presence of God? After all, isn't this what we were created for, to be in the presence of God, to have a relationship with Him? But this passage and many others in Scripture show us that the presence of God can be quite a dangerous thing. Our passage is all about the presence of God. It's manifested through the Ark of the Covenant. Um, The Ark of the Covenant was that sacred, gold-plated, um, box. It was a portable box about four feet wide and two feet, two, four feet long and two feet wide and high. Um, there were items in there like the Ten Commandments and even uh, manna that had fell from heaven in the, in the, in the, in the wilderness and the desert as they wandered. Um, it was to remind God's people of, of God's presence. Upon the top of the lid was the, these uh, two facing cherubim, these gold angels, and, 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 and between them the glory of God, the presence of God, rested. And the presence of God was there. And so it was to remind God's people of his, of his, of his presence with them. Uh, wherever the ark went, the presence of God went with them. It was portable. It would, it would later give way to the temple to signify that God's presence was no longer just portable. It was permanent. It was permanent with God's people as it rested in the temple. Uh, it was to remind people of, of God's salvation, that he rescued them from slavery and brought them into freedom. Um, and into uh, that in relationship with him. The story of God's presence will expose three things for us today that are so important. One is the weightiness of God, our struggle with our personal glory, and then finally, a very important question that all of us need to ask. And this story of God's people helps us to look at all three of these things. So first, let's talk about this. The, the weightiness of God. I thought we would start out this study just in a really light note, and just talk about how serious God is. The seriousness of God. The weightiness of God. That's really the overarching theme in this chapter. And if you read chapter 3, actually, and 4, 5, 6, and 7, you will see that there is this big overarching theme. That God should not be taken lightly. So the, the movement of the ark on the battlefield, uh, defeating God's people, and then moving from region to region, you will see this overarching theme that wherever the presence of God goes, there is this heavy hand of judgment. There's this heavy hand of God weighing, weighing on, 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 on everywhere it goes. And so it's, it's clear that the presence of God should not be taken lightly. Wherever he goes, uh, things are happening that are devastating the people. Looking at just a few of the details, we covered some of them today, uh, the, the Israel army is defeated, and they wonder why they are defeated, so they bring the Ark of the Covenant to them. They're defeated. 4,000 men die that day. It's horrible. They're crushed in battle. It's a huge loss. And the question is, why did we lose? Why has God forgotten us? Oh, I know. We didn't have God here. So let's, let's go get the Ark of the Covenant, bring them on the battlefield, and that will fix it, right? Wrong. Things go from bad to much worse. The second battle that they go into, now not only 4,000 men died, 30,000. 4,000 is bad. 30,000. They are utterly devastated. And even worse than that, the symbol of God's presence, the presence of God among the people, not only are 30,000 people struck dead, now the ark is captured. 
And the Philistines, uh, they're excited about this. I mean, they use this as a war trophy. They bring it to, back to their place. And they set the Ark of the Covenant at the foot of their god, of a statue of their god, which is a god named Dagon, you know, the Dagon statue. So they, they, uh, they, they, set this, they set the Ark at the foot of this to kind of show, like, uh, as a war trophy. And they're putting their god next to the symbol of the god of their enemy. And this is meant to show us and to communicate to everyone, look, not only are we stronger than the army of, of the Israelites, our God is stronger than their God. We crush them because we are mighty, and our God is mighty, more mighty than their God, and we crush them. The next morning they wake up, and their God, Dagon, is, is fallen down, face down, in a position of worship to the Ark of the Covenant. Face down with the arms stretched out and looking like he's worshiping. And so they're like, we can't have this. This is a bad image for our God and our people. And so they prop up their God and put him back up so he's not looking like he's worshiping the God of the Israelites. Everything's good, right? Well, the next morning they wake up, the statue is bent over again, but this time his head, arms, and legs are all broken off. God cannot be taken lightly. What happens is the Philistines are struck with diseases and sickness, and they think, okay, uh, let's remember this, guys. The, remember what happened to the Egyptians? Remember what happened when they mocked the God of the Israelites? Things did not go well for them. Let's get this out of here. So they say, get the ark out of here. So they, they give it to their neighbors. Um, and, and the neighbors are like, great, we have, we have this wonderful, expensive, uh, nice-looking treasure. Well, they're all struck with tumors, and those who didn't die instantly were sick. And they say, get this out of here. So they send it to their other neighbors. Same thing happens. All around the region, everywhere the ark go, goes, the hand of God weighs heavy on wherever it goes. And they say, let's just give it back to the Israelites, right? Good idea, right? They're, they're, they're wising up, the presence of God is strong, and he is powerful, and, and, and they don't want him there anymore. Obviously, the presence of God is a mighty thing. The God of the Israelites is not something they want to mess with. So they send it back to Israel. So it, things go great, right? No, they actually get worse. So the Israelites receive it and say, finally, the presence of God is back with us. They open up the, the lid of it, everyone there dies. You've seen this in the documentary, uh, Indiana Jones <coughs> and uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right? They open up the ark and their faces melt off. This is what happens. These stories show us a pretty clear principle. God cannot be taken lightly by anyone, by, by, God, by his people or by the enemies of God's people. The hand of God weighs heavy wherever it goes. He cannot be used like a good luck charm. Oh, we lost. Maybe we could, if we just bring God here, then he'll help us and things will go better. He says, no. Uh, God will not be humiliated like in the story of Dagon. He will not, be worship, he will not, be, he will not worship any, anyone. He will, not, he will not be used by anyone. And God will not be controlled or manipulated for our blessing. We cannot trick God to give us what we want. We cannot manipulate him. By any means, God is showing us I will not be taken lightly. There is nothing and no one more weighty than God. And therefore, no one's opinion matters more than God. When God speaks, the conversation is over. When God commands, we ought to listen. God must be taken seriously. But that's, that's really easy for us to understand as we look at Scripture and we see that God should be taken seriously. And, and you may not disagree with me. Uh, you may understand that, but it is yet another thing to live out. It's really hard to live out this idea that God is, is a God of, of, of holiness, 
He's a God of glory. He's a God that should be taken very seriously. It's easy to take God lightly. And God points out the reason for this as well. And there's, there's a personal struggle with each, within each of us. And that is our struggle with personal glory. That's where this, this story moves now as we look at the weight of God. We also look at our personal struggle with our own glory. God asked this question to Eli earlier in chapter 2. He says, why... Why do you ignore what I ask of you, and instead you listen to everyone else? I wonder if God could ask that question of us today as well. Why is it that you would rather honor yourself, or you'd rather honor people in your life, rather than honoring me? And this is really startling. God is, God is showing us something. He's, he's saying, I, I instruct you in the way to live. I offer wisdom and insight and commands. I, I give you my law. And you ignore those things, but then when someone else tells you what to do, you jump to it so quick in order to please them. Are they, are they really more important than me? And that's the hard question to ask because it's, oftentimes we would say, that's what it means. Well, they are more important than God. We take other people more serious. Just think of this, if a friend is upset with you, let's say you do something or some, something to someone, later you find out that you really wounded a friend. This is someone you care about. Um, you really wounded a friend, you hurt them, you offended them. Um, you put a strain on that relationship, and until, that relation, until you go and, and, and make amends and reconcile, there's going to be a barrier between that friendship, and you don't want that. And so you go to that friend, and you likely will express remorse and guilt and regret over what you did. You'd humble yourself. You would, kind of, you would do the hard thing and actually go talk to this friend. Uh, you would ask for forgiveness, and you would give assurance to this friend of, you know, I'm going I'm to try my best uh, to grow in this area. Uh, please forgive me. It wasn't right for me to do that. Um, you would renew your unspoken covenant of friendship. Hey, we're friends, and you can trust me, and I'm, I love you, and, and, you, and you can love me, and, and I messed up big time. God is there, and he goes to Eli, and he says, Eli, you're the priest of the people. What is the deal? Why do you do this to others, but you don't do this with me? Why, when you see that you've wronged somebody, you go to them and you ask for forgiveness, but you don't do that with me? Why, when I say something to you, you ignore it, but when your children ask of you something, you, you do everything that they say? Are they more important than I? Why we do this can be boiled down to one problem. God's glory is not the most important thing. Ours is. Our comfort, our preferences, our instincts, uh, what people think of us is more important than what God thinks of us. God is showing us through this story that, that we, none of us are immune to taking God lightly. And we care so much more about the opinions of others than we do about the opinions of God. If you want to know how, 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 how glorious something is in your life, just ask these questions. How much does it affect my behavior? Or how much time do I spend thinking about it? If you think of those things, think of the th those categories in your life. That thing is glorious to you. It is most glorious to you because it is weighty. It is influencing how you live. And God is saying, I am most glorious. There is nothing that should motivate you. There is no opinion that should matter. There is, there is no uh, command that should influence how you live greater than mine. And we often find ourselves thinking so much more of the glory of others and our own glory. Maybe it's because we see God more like a waiter than we do as a savior or even as a friend. 
Uh, here's a waiter analogy. To take God lightly is to see him as a waiter while we're, we're out for dinner with a group of friends that we love. And we are having a great conversation. We're having a lot of fun. God is not part of the conversation. We barely even notice him at all. Uh, we go on the conversation with our friends and talk about a lot of things and have a great time uh, until we need something. And then when we need something, our, our, we need more water, our, our steak isn't cooked the way we like it, or we're ready to go, we're ready for the bill and to leave, then we call over the waiter and say, okay, you can help us now, come back, come back into our conversation. So the waiter is involved in our lives, but only to the extent that he's useful to us. And if he does a good job, we'll give him a nice tip as a form of our love and obedience to him, as a form of our love and appreciation to him. If he gets a bad service, well, we'll just go to a different restaurant. We won't come back there again. We'll tell people, yeah, he can't be trusted. Don't go there. Sometimes we can treat God like a waiter. If he does a good job, then we honor him with our lives. If he does a bad job, we accuse him of being uh, unjust and unkind. The Bible tells us that God should be so much a part of our lives that not only is he there at the dinner table with us, with our friends, he's actually the meal itself. He's the purpose for our gathering. He's the one that sustains us in those conversations. He's the one that guides those conversations. He's the reason for our gathering in the first place. He's the centerpiece of it all. He is the, 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 he is the reason for our speaking, our doing, our loving, our living. And to neglect him is to starve. To neglect God is to die. He is not just something that we bring into our life to help our life or something that, we, uh, that, that, that helps us or we acknowledge as long as he is useful to us. To deny God is to deny life itself. God does not exist for us. We exist for him. Eli died because he fell off his chair and he was very heavy. I just want you to notice. Now, this story is perfect without that detail. We don't need this detail. Eli fell over in his chair backwards, and he broke his neck, and he died. We go on with our lives, right? We understand everything we need to know. They want us to know something else, that he was gloriously overweight. Why is this important for us to know? The story works fine without it. Why do we need to know it? He was, he was heavy because he ate so much of the animal fat offering that was meant to be given to God as an act of worship. We learn this through the story of 1 Samuel in chapter 2 and 3. He was meant to give the offering of this animal fat to God on behalf of the people as an act of worship. God was supposed to get the best, and instead Eli ate it all. And he ate it all as a lifestyle, and he got very overweight, and he died because of that. Glory means weight. Glory means heaviness. And instead of making God heavy, Eli wore it all around his waist. He consumed it. He ate it. This is figurative. It's also literal. It's one is, the Bible writers are wanting us to know something, that we are so much more concerned about our glory than we are about God's. And instead of giving our lives to God in an act of worship, we, we consume that glory as Eli did. They were supposed to take the animal meat. They take the raw meat and they put it in boiling water. And as the water boils, it is meant to boil off the fat. And the fat would separate from the meat. And that fat would be an offering to God. And then the priest would take the meat out and feed his family. So he would be enjoying as grateful, a grateful offering to God. He would offer the fat and they would take the meat out. Well, this is what their family did. They put the meat in to cook it. And then right before the, meat fell, the fat fell off, they'd stick a fork in there and pull it out and eat it. Right before the fat fell off. Now they know something about meat that we know today. <laughs> 
the fatty parts are the best. The fatty parts are the most delicious. God says, I get the best. Give the best to me, and you get the rest. As an act of my provision for you, you give me the best. And they said, well, we want the best. We want the best, and well, how about we give you the leftover? They wanted the meat. They want it with all the grizzle, literally robbing God of his glory. Literally robbing God of his glory. Taking for themselves what God commanded to give to them. So what's the big deal? I mean, that, what is the big deal, really? I mean, so they ate some meat. Is this really a big deal? They took the meat out of the boiling water a little quicker than God told them to. Uh, and they're thinking, well, you did, God, you did the same thing with Adam and Eve. I mean, you told them not to eat an apple. Come on. Like, what is the big deal? Is God just like a stickler for, like, odd rules? Is he just like a glutton for our punishment? He doesn't want us to be happy. Adam and Eve, they saw the apple, and they said, well, it looks fine. It looks pleasing to eat. It looks like it could be nourishing. What's the big deal? Eli and his family, his son, said, well, what's the big deal? Yeah, God said to do this, but it looks delicious. It tastes good, too. What's wrong with a little bite of an apple? What's wrong with a little fat from the meat? It's easy to see that these rules are just arbitrary, but God wants us to see something else. Not a single command of God is arbitrary. Not a single command is pointless. Not a, th a single law that God gives us is without profound meaning. Every command is given because he knows that if we allow our heart to express affection for anything but him or anything above him, it will destroy us. God knows that if we give our lives to anything else, we will be without him. We will be cut off for him, with, from him. We will be cast out from his presence, and it will mean our own demise. God's commands are an overflow of his love for us. He loves us so much to teach us that we are so prone to run from him, to disobey him, to seek our own glory, that he tells us, don't, don't do that. But do these things. He's teaching us how to depend on him, how to submit our lives to him. He's teaching us not just to follow meaningless rules. He's teaching us how to enjoy him because he knows that our hearts are so deceitful. He knows that if we give ourselves to something else, then we will run so far from him that we will never find our way back. We do that every time we pursue our own glory. So when he says, don't eat the meat until the fat is burned off, he's not a lunatic. He's actually running after us, loving us, teaching us like a good father. He is like a good father desperately pleading with his children to not run out into the middle of the street where we will get killed. And we would say, why, are you, why don't you want me to be happy? Why don't you want me to have fun? It's just a little fat. It's just a good-tasting apple. It's just a little whatever. Nothing can satisfy us like God. He knows that we will be content in our own sinful humanity to, be, to run after smaller satisfactions, smaller loves, and we will live our whole lives content in just loving things that never bring us his full happiness. And God says, I will relentlessly run after you. I will relentlessly pursue you. I love you so much. How do we rob God of his glory today? 
by not giving him a portion of our lives. He says, give me everything. You are to live your lives as an, as an offering. You are, your spiritual act of worship is to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. He's saying, put your whole body, your whole lives on the altar of worship for me. Well, what part of my lives, God, should, God, should I live in worship to you? He says, it all is mine. Give me everything. Oh, gosh, that sounds like a pretty rough life. You don't understand. Nothing can satisfy like God can. We rob him of his glory by taking credit for what he has done. Good things happen. We receive blessing. And we say, well, look at what I did. Of course, this came through my own achievement. It came through my hard work. It came through, it came through my, my smarts, my kindness. We rob God of his glory by not being thankful and offering up praise for all that we have. We rob him of his glory by serving him externally to be noticed or to feel important, doing spiritual things so that others will like us, or not taking his commands seriously. It's true that the Bible is filled with morals, but it's not just a book of morals. It's true that it's filled with history. It's not just a history book. It is a story of God's relentless pursuit of his people. It's a story of God's redemption, a way, a way how he saves us from our own, our own faults and sins. It's his pursuit of people who are foolishly running to lesser loves and lesser things that satisfy us. That's what the whole Bible is about. And it's the answer. It provides the answer to the biggest problem that we keep running from God, disobeying his commands, and find ourselves living under the heavy hand of his judgment. So if God is most glorious, then that means that all of our hopes and desires and dreams are ultimately met in him. In his presence, there is real joy. God is weighty. God is weighty. He is heavy, and, and his people took him very lightly. They used him like a good luck charm. They, the enemies even used him like a war trophy, and they suffered the pain of that reality. In their own devastation, they realized this, and in this devastation, they ask a very important question, and finally, that's the question that we need to ask. It's found in, the, in a couple chapters later in chapter 6, verse 20, and I want you to think about this. All the people are devastated. The Ark of the Covenant has been cast from them. They have, left, they have lost thousands, tens of thousands of people. Their pro, their, uh, Eli has died. Their leader has died. Their, their enemies have claimed victory. The Ark comes back and still not doing good things. And they ask a question, okay, who's able to stand before this holy God? Who is able to stand? It's a good question, isn't it? And they're thinking, okay, God, we're not good enough. That's obvious. To whom will you go? Who is good enough for you? We obviously have made you very angry, right? Do you gather that? Wouldn't you say the same thing if this all happened? You say, okay, God, help us out here. We obviously are not making you happy, so you're not happy with us. Our enemies are not making you happy, and you're not good with them. Where can you go? Who can stand in your presence? You're obviously that holy. And we either have to try to be good enough so that God will love us, or we have to send him away. He says, who can stand so who can be with you and go toe-to-toe with God, or where will you go? So they're saying something, I think, that our, our world, we have, we have one of two options. We cope with the glory of God and the weightiness of God in one of two ways. One, we make God lighter than he really is. We make God light. Well, God doesn't really care about those things. Those are just little sins. Those are not big things. I mean, I'm, you know, it's not that bad. So God, God knows I'm a work in progress. God's patient. The Bible says he's patient. So we, we cope with this idea that God is weighty by just making him smaller. 
We make him lighter. We make him just like a good buddy, a good friend. After all, he, he has to be forgiving. He's God. Or the second way is that we make ourselves bigger than we actually are. We make ourselves weighter. So that's the only way. The, the balancing, you've got to make God lighter or you've got to make yourself heavier to stand toe-to-toe -to, -toe to God. Neither of those options work. We've already learned if God's holiness is too heavy, his commands are too weighty, we have all fallen short, no one can run from him. And there is a third way. And we need to answer this question. Okay, so who can stand? How do we stand in the presence of God? Samuel comes back into the story in chapter 7. He says, you want to know how to stand in God's presence? Put away your false gods and serve no one else but God alone. Give your whole lives to him. Serve him only. Samuel is showing them, you know how you stand in God's presence? First through, first through repentance. Uh, a turning from all the things that you have made glorious in your life and listening to God. Turning to Him. Begin to listen to God. Begin to turn, turn from a life that was distant from Him where other things were, were, were weighty in your life above God, where things were much more important to you than God and what He says. By taking Him lightly, turn from that life and now go and serve God. Turn to Him. Repentance is not just regretting sin. It's not just feeling bad or uh, feeling sorrow. Or it's not even just stopping sin. Re re uh, repentance is not just, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. It is turning from sin and turning to God in a humble reliance and trust upon Him. That what He has to offer is truly best for us. What He says is most important. We begin to listen. And people who take God seriously do listen. People who take God seriously repent. And people who repent from their sins are able to stand in God's presence because of what happens next. And so Samuel says, get away from all of your sin and all of your affections that you were running to. Get away from all your false gods and serve God only. And then in chapter 7, verse 9, so Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord of Israel. And something happens that hasn't happened in three chapters and the Lord answered him. The heavy hand of God was lifted. The anger of God's wrath and punishment for these people whose hearts were so far from him, it has is, it is changed, and you can feel it now. The several chapters where we feel this core idea of God's weightiness and seriousness, now there's a new tone. God answers. God listens. God receives the sacrifice, and peace is given to his people. Did they? Why? Because now they're all of a sudden polished and good? Absolutely not. The curse of breaking God's command would, would meant exile. The curse of breaking God's command was you had to go away from God's presence. You had to leave God's presence. Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden when this beautiful place that God had given to them as a gift of place of dwelling. The Israelites were to be exiled from their land. Our passage describes that the ark and the glory of God go into exile. Instead of God's people being cast out from his presence, God's presence is cast out into exile. Here's the answer to the most pressing question in the Bible. How can we stand in the presence of a holy God? This is the good news. The answer is the gospel. It is the good news. It is our only hope for knowing and enjoying God. The people of God deserve to be cast away. You and I deserve to be cast away from God's presence because he is that holy and because you and I have failed to be obedient to God. But instead, it is God who exiles himself. It is God who is cast out. He bears the judgment, the humiliation. He bears the suffering of the curse of our rebellion. The blood sacrifice that Samuel offers, is, is, it signifies that the threat of God 
for our sin and our lack of, of obeying his commands is now covered over. This points us to the cross and the person of Christ. God takes his judgment. He takes his judgment. He was cut off. Christ was cut off from the fellowship of God so that we can be welcomed home and stand in the presence of God and not be afraid. The Old Testament increasingly points to the cross of Jesus as it talks about and fully develops this practice of sacrifice. When eventually all the weight of glory, the weightiness of God, the judgment of God over sin is pressed deep into Christ on the cross and it kills him. And he dies for us. He dies in our place. Jesus is cut off from the presence of God so that you and I wouldn't be. Jesus is abandoned and exiled so you and I could be welcomed home. In chapter 4, we saw that Ebenezer was this place where the Israelites were encamped, and they were encamped there to go out into battle, and they lost. It was kind of the beginning of the end for them. They lost, and they lost another battle, and things were devastating. Over the period of seven months, they were without God. Samuel comes back. They repent of their sins. They turn to God. He offers a sacrifice. God's peace comes to them. And now again, at this place of Ebenezer, Samuel, he places a rock as a place of remembrance. And we've been singing this song, we sang it just a moment ago, uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, Here I Raise My Ebenezer. And, and you sing that, but many of you don't know what it means. I, he's saying, and this is where it comes from. Here I, I'm, raising my, I'm, ra I'm raising my place of hope. I'm, I'm remembering where my help comes from. I'm remembering how you helped me, God. When I stood before you and you were weighty in, me, in my life because you're so holy, and I am so small because I am so sinful. And going toe-to-toe -to -toe -to -toe with you is not an option. Either I had, to, uh, I had to try to please you in all of my good work, which that wasn't going to happen, or I had to send you away and never be with you forever. But you helped me. You came. You went to exile. You suffered, you suffered the pain of my sin. You became to me a stone of help. Christ is that rock. He is the stone of help. Our Ebenezer is the cross. At the cross, we see the seriousness of our sin. We see the seriousness of God. I mean, there's nothing more serious than God killing his own son. So it's on the cross we see, wow, God, God is serious about my sin. But it's also there we see our hope. It's where God's generosity, his grace is poured out. It's where his love is poured out. It's where God holds nothing back in order to pursue us, to love us, to rescue us, to save us. It is where we see that God goes to the greatest lengths possible so that we would not be cast from his presence, but we could actually stand before him and be with him forever. Jesus' sacrifice is God's greatest declaration of help for you when you are overwhelmed. It's his greatest declaration of help when you are in sin, not knowing where to turn. It's his greatest declaration of you that you can have forgiveness when you have wronged him. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 2, he says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Did you hear this? I mean, this is the most absurd and would have been the most foreign and ironic phrase 
to the people of Israel at this time. What is Paul saying? He says, you were once asking, who can stand in the presence of God who is so holy, to saying, get excited about standing in the presence of God who is so holy. This is an incredible reversal. This is a, such a radical thing to say. God's people understood, no one can stand in front of God. Even when God's presence was on a mountain, if they got close to the mountain and touched it, they were burned into dust. They, they opened up the Ark of the Covenant and their faces were melted off. And you think you can just walk up into heaven and say, God, I'm here, I did a pretty good job in my life. And he'll say, come on in, buddy. Paul is saying, don't be afraid. Why, why don't you have to be afraid? Because Jesus has made a way for you. Jesus has satisfied God's anger over sin. This holy God who is perfect is now can have fellowship with sinners because of what Jesus has done. So much so that you can go up to God and be face to face. And, and, and instead of seeing judgment, his arms will be outstretched and he will welcome you home. You don't have to be afraid. What a wonderful promise of rescue. What a wonderful promise of forgiveness for all who turn from their sin, put away their idols, put away their heart affections that make anything more glorious than God, and turn to God and serve Him only. The basis of our standing in God's presence without being killed by Him is the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus was exiled from the presence of God, His Father, so that we would be welcomed home. The weight of glory crushed Jesus so that it wouldn't crush us. And through the cross, the glory of God ceased to be one of fear, but one of joy, one that we can look forward to. And by what means do we stand? What means do we stand? The basis of our standing is the sacrifice of Christ, but what means? The means is faith. Faith is the instrument of our salvation. It is the instrument of our forgiveness. It is the instrument of our of the righteousness of Christ being applied to us. And an ev and evidence of our genuine faith and our neediness for God's holiness is repentance, moving away from sin and towards God. The result is peace. The result is God himself. The result is fellowship in his presence forever. Unless you put away your sin and move towards God in true repentance and trust in the grace of God that is offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, here's a hard thing that I need to say. No one will see God. Without repentance, without trusting in God, without the sacrifice of Christ being your only hope, you will not be with God. But with that, He will be yours forever. Have you trusted God in that way? Have you put your faith in Jesus, not as a lucky rabbit's foot, but as your Savior, as your God who loves you, who has made a way for you. What a great God. Let's pray.